Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for September 2013. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go through the critical care literature that caught our eye in the last month. So let's begin with sepsis because that's the series running in the New England Journal of Medicine. The opening review article in this series by Derek Angus and Tom Vanderpoel called Severe Sepsis and Septic Shock gives us a wonderful overview of the history of sepsis. They tell us that sepsis is one of the oldest and most elusive syndromes in medicine. Hippocrates claimed that sepsis was the process by which flesh rots, swamps generate foul airs, and wounds fester. Garland later considered sepsis a laudable event necessary for wound healing. Then, with the confirmation of germ theory by Semmelweis and Pasteur and others, sepsis was recast as a systemic infection, often described as blood poisoning and assumed to be the result of the host's invasion by pathogenic organisms that then spread in the bloodstream. However, with the advent of modern antibiotics, germ theory did not fully explain that the pathogenesis of sepsis Many patients with sepsis died despite successful eradication of the inciting pathogen, and thus researchers suggested that it was the host, not the germ, that drove the pathogenesis of sepsis. From this, they go on to take us on a journey through the modern evolution of the sepsis syndrome, the interventions and the guidelines. So it's really an article that you must read. The second article in the series, Resuscitation Fluids by John Myberg and Michael Mithen, looks at the history of the use of IV fluid for resuscitation, including the start in 1832 when Lewins used alkalinizing salt solutions for cholera, the introduction of Hartman's and Ringer's solution in 1885, and the initial use of human albumin resulting from blood fractionation in 1941. They then go on to take us through the physiology, our understanding of the early Starling compartment model, to the more complex understanding of the active role of endothelial-based glycoproteins and proteoglycans and subsequent interstitial absorption of fluids. Then they take us through each of the resuscitation fluids and their use and the history and the evidence starting with albumin and the Cochrane meta-analysis in 1998 that suggested a relative risk of death that was increased with albumin uh, with a risk ratio of 1.68. The SAFE study in 2004 refuting this um, and showing that albumin was safe with the exception of TBI. The FEAST study in 2011 in sub-Saharan febrile children where albumin was shown to have an increased uh, relative risk of death compared to saline boluses. They go on to talk about semi-synthetic colloids, HES, gelatin, dextrans, and the journey we've all witnessed in the last decade with starches and concerns of kidney injury and death, the Scandinavian studies reporting increased risk of death, and finally the CHEF study this year showing an increased rate of renal replacement therapy in critically ill patients receiving starch. Finally, they talk about crystalloids, the evidence from the colloid trials that can be used to provide some insight into the role of crystalloids and some smaller chloride versus chloride restrictive trials that are suggesting need for larger RCTs to better understand this fluid group. Um, They talk about dose and volume of fluids and how 
there are complex ideas but no real consensus and they conclude with a really good table of recommendations for the use of intravenous fluid that is definitely worth looking at. From this we go to the Intensive Care Medicine Journal where the harmonising international trials of early goal-directed resuscitation for severe sepsis and septic shock, methodology of process, arise and promise study was published. Now this is a methodology paper but it's of interest because there are big sepsis trials coming our way. There's the ARISE study, the Australian and New Zealand one, PROCESS in the USA and PROMISE, the UK study. So this methodology paper tells us that these studies are fundamentally similar. They are asking the question, is early goal-directed therapy better than standard care at reducing mortality and morbidity in patients with severe sepsis. They have similar key design elements, that is they are patient level equal randomised parallel group superiority trials which have inclusion criteria consistent with the Rivers trial and they're powered to detect a 6 to 8% absolute mortality difference. Now between these three studies there are approximately 4,000 patients. They are all due for publication early next year and the individual trials will be landmark papers. In addition, the methodological harmonisation allows for pooled results. So surely by the end of this process we will have a better understanding of the role of early goal-directed therapy in severe sepsis. Moving to a completed sepsis trial, we have the ART123 study. Now this randomised double-blind placebo-controlled phase 2b study evaluates the safety and efficacy of recombinant human-soluble thrombomodulin, ART123, in patients with sepsis and suspected DIC. Now, ART123 acts by reducing thrombin-mediated clotting and enhancing protein C activation at the site of clotting. It has anti-inflammatory properties, including interfering with the activation of complement and inactivating high-mobility group protein B1, a mediator associated with mortality in late sepsis. It's compared to placebo in 233 patients with sepsis and suspected DIC. The study drug was administered for six days. They report no difference in primary outcome of 28-day mortality, although the reduction in mortality met the pre-specified level of significance for suggestion of efficacy, not proof, but suggestion, in a Phase two trial. There was no difference in organ function, inflammatory markers, bleeding, thrombotic events, or new infections, although there was an increase in thrombocytopenia, anemia, and post-procedural bleeding with ART123. Post-hoc analysis suggests benefits in patients with at least one organ dysfunction and an INR of greater than 1.4 at baseline. There was a lack of benefit in patients with overt DIC, although this is discussed at length, as a protocol amendment saw evidence of benefit when a greater degree of coagulopathy was present. So overall, they demonstrate safety and the possibility of benefit, and they feel a phase three trial is justified with a design modified to better characterise the complex interactions present within the coagulation, cascade and septic patients. So perhaps this is the start of trials in sepsis that look at specific groups, for instance, coagulation disturbance in sepsis rather than all comers. 
Let's move away from sepsis and into ARDS. Again, in intensive care medicine, we have a paper, Prevalence and Prognosis of Call Pulmonale During Protective Ventilation for ARDS. Now, ARDS is associated with pulmonary vascular dysfunction, increased right ventricular work, and with the potential for progressive RV dysfunction. This prospective observational study describes the incidence of core pulmonale in patients receiving a protective ventilation strategy for ARDS. A total of 226 patients with moderate to severe, by the Berlin definition, ARDS, underwent transthoracic echo while ventilated. Core pulmonale was defined as right ventricular dilation, that's an end diastolic RV-LV area ratio greater than 0.6, associated with septal dyskinesia on a short axis view. Core pulmonale was identified in 22% of patients and was associated with an infectious cause as the origin of ARDS, higher driving pressure, lower respiratory compliance, and a higher respiratory rate, higher CO2s, nitric oxide use and proning, a higher incidence of shock, and a higher ICU and hospital mortality, with core pulmonale an independent predictor of 28-day mortality. So what does this tell us? Well, core pulmonale is common in ARDS, at least moderate to severe ARDS, is perhaps associated with worse disease, that is more need for salvage hypoxia therapies, and is associated with worse outcomes. And the authors postulate that this opens up the prospect of testing specific therapies to alleviate pulmonary vasculature and RV dysfunction. Now, the next study is in critical care medicine, and this is critical care transition programs and the risk of readmission or death after discharge from an ICU, a systematic review and meta-analysis. So this meta-analysis examines the question, do programs that provide transition services for patients discharged from ICU to a regular ward reduce the risk of ICU admission or death? They identified nine studies that described transition programs that were part of the hospital outreach team to nurse liaison program. Meta-analysis demonstrated reduced risk of ICU readmission the relative risk of 0.87, p-value of 0.03, but no significant reduction in hospital mortality. The effect on readmission was not dependent on the presence of an intensivist on the team. So these findings suggest further research is needed to define the ideal model for transition programs, that is, a multidisciplinary hospital team, ICU liaison nurse, um, and also identifying the mechanism by which reduced admissions occur. That is, is there a group of high-risk patients who may benefit, or is it care plans or early recognition of deterioration? Let's move on to cognitive function after ICU. So firstly, we have the physical and cognitive performance of patients with acute lung injury one year after initial trophic versus full enteral thedin, the EDEN trial follow-up, published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Now, this study, published by Dale Needham and the NIH-NHLBI-ARDS network, is a follow-up study of the EDEN trial. And if you remember, that was initial trophic versus full enteral feeding in ventilated patients with acute lung injury that had a negative primary outcome of short-term mortality and ventilated free days. And this follow-up looks at them 6 to 12 months later and reports on cognitive, physical and psychological outcomes. And what they found was that acute lung injury survivors perform below predicted values across 
physical and cognitive tests that the ALI survivors show some improvement from 6 to 12 months and that there was no difference in cognitive and physical outcomes between trophic and full enteral feeding. So our patients do worse than the population or expected values after ICU. They get better over time and that the feeding strategy didn't seem to make a difference. Now, the next study is, again, in American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine by Faraz Ali Shah and colleagues, and this is bidirectional relationship between cognitive function and pneumonia. Now, they say a single episode of infection may also lead to a cascade of secondary illnesses, disability, and death. The authors hypothesise that a bidirectional relationship exists between cognition and pneumonia. That is, small changes in cognition predisposed to pneumonia, which increases the rate of cognitive decline. And this same relationship may occur in critically ill patients. So in this study, a longitudinal analysis of 5,888 well-functioning older participants in a community cardiovascular health study, of which 10.9% were hospitalised for pneumonia at least once. Those hospitalised were older, male, had more chronic conditions and lower cognitive scores than those never hospitalised with pneumonia. What they found was that there was a relationship between small changes in cognition and the risk of pneumonia hospitalisation, that there was a bidirectional relationship between cognition and pneumonia independent of demographic characteristics, income, health, behaviours and chronic disease, and that pneumonia hospitalisation accelerated time to dementia. So they discussed the extrapolation to critical care literature with the inherent difficulties in examining cognitive function prior to critical care illness and discussed the idea that cognitive decline may suppress the inflammatory response and inflammation may accelerate neurodegenerative change. Interesting stuff. So let's move on to kids. And we've got safety and effects of two red blood cell transfusion strategies in paediatric cardiac surgery patients, a randomised controlled trial by D.H. Dergesbacher, DeWild uh, and colleagues. And this is published in Intensive Care Medicine. So although evidence for a restrictive transfusion strategy in critically ill children exists, the evidence in the cardiac surgical population is not extensive. This single-centre RCT open-label study compared a restrictive, uh, that was 8 grams per deciliter trigger, to a liberal 10.8 gram per deciliter trigger strategy in paediatric patients with non-cyanotic congenital heart defects that required elective cardiac surgery. In 107 patients, they found that the restrictive strategy was associated with lower transfusion volumes and hospital length of stay. Median was eight to nine days, and there was no difference in other outcomes. Now, there are clear limitations. It's open label, single centre, small numbers, and other than less red blood cell transfusion amounts, the only outcome was a one-day decrease in length of stay. Still, it suggests a restrictive strategy is at least safe. So let's move on to something a bit different and go back to the New England Journal of Medicine. So this study, diverse sources of C. difficile infection identified on whole genome sequencing, has been included because it's novel. So C. diff remains an endemic problem for modern healthcare facilities. 
despite rigorous attempts at source control, precautions and environmental cleaning. So are we missing sources of transmission? This study uses whole genome sequencing of 1,223 C. diff isolates over three and a half years in the Oxfordshire community. And they found that 71% of the uh, samples came from inpatients, 25% were outpatients, and 4% were other hospitals. Only 35% of isolates were genetically linked, and 45% were genetically distinct from all other isolates. It is worth noting that this study was conducted during a non-outbreak period, and in outbreak periods there's an increase in epidemic strains. So this study suggests that C. diff acquisition in hospitals is not simply a patient-to-patient event between infected hospital patients. Due to the methodology of this study, it's not clear if there is a reservoir of asymptomatic carriers in the community or the hospital or both, but it certainly suggests that more evidence is required to elaborate this, and that may mean more routine testing during studies. And finally, continuing with the infectious disease focus, let's look at the impact of regular collaboration between infectious diseases and critical care practitioners on antimicrobial utilisation and patient outcomes, published in Critical Care Medicine. So this single-centre medical ICU study looks at the effect of regular collaboration between infectious disease fellows and critical care practitioners on antimicrobial use and patient outcomes. So they compared two three-month periods before and after periods, and they found that there were similar baseline features, that hospital-acquired pneumonia was the indication for antibiotic use in 53% of cases, that the collaboration intervention led to reductions in use of extended-spectrum penicillins, carbapenems, vancomycin and metronidazole. There was an increase in narrow-spectrum penicillins. There was a decrease in non-guideline treatment and a decrease in mechanical ventilation and length of stay, leading to an annual saving of $89,944. Now, it is plausible that infectious disease fellow input led to a decrease in inappropriate antibiotics from 37% to 12%, and a general narrowing of spectrum and shortening of duration of antibiotics. Um, Did this lead to a, a marked improvement in patient outcomes? It seems that that could be a stretch. I guess the final question is, why is it that we need ID physicians to tell us how to comply with guidelines that are ready available? Why can't we do it ourselves? So on that note, it's the end of the September 2013 podcast. Come to the website and look at the studies. Otherwise, I'll see you next month. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not check out our websites, Critique, Crit Nurse. Our websites are leading providers of online critical care education and include podcasts, journal clubs, online presentations, modules, and much, much more. You can also join our free blog to help you stay up to date. Our websites are found at www.crit-iq.com www.crit-nurse.com You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or visit us at the iTunes store.
check out our data interpretation and CT interpretation apps. Critique, making critical care education easier.